0: what is truth 9-11 written by greg fernandez jr narrated by ryan barry iraq invasion on july 23 2002 members of the british government and british intelligence agencies participated in a private meeting at 10 downing street 10 downing street is the official residence of the united kingdom prime minister among those present at the meeting were mi6 chief richard dearlove Chairman of the Joint Intelligence Committee John Scarlett and then Prime Minister Tony Blair. The minutes of the meeting were written by Downing Street foreign policy aide Matthew Rycroft. Saddam's regime was tough and based on extreme fear. The written notes of the meeting stated, the only way to overthrow it was likely to be by massive military action. C reported on his recent talks in Washington. C was MI6 Chief Richard Dearlove. There was a perceptible shift in attitude. Military action was now seen as inevitable. Bush wanted to remove Saddam through military action, justified by the conjunction of terrorism and WMD, but the intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy. It seemed clear that Bush had made up his mind to take military action, even if the timing was not yet decided. But the case was thin, Saddam was not threatening his neighbors and his WMD capacity was less than that of Libya, North Korea, or Iran. Three years later, this information was finally released to the public after the Sunday Times published the written notes of the meeting on May 1, 2005. Five months before the private meeting at 10 Downing Street, the CIA sent former Ambassador Joseph Wilson back to Africa to investigate claims that Saddam Hussein was trying to buy yellow cake uranium from the West African country of Nigeria. Joseph Wilson was the Deputy Chief of Missions at the United States Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait on August 2, 1990. Around 2.30 a.m., Wilson received a phone call at his house in Mansour, Iraq, which was 20 minutes away from the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. On the other line of the phone was National Security Council Deputy Sandra Charles, calling from Washington, D.C. In his book, The Politics of Truth, Joseph Wilson wrote about what Sandra Charles told him, The caller had in fact been Sandy, trying to get through from Washington, D.C., to alert me that Iraqi troops were moving into Kuwait, and that our ambassadors in Kuwait City, Nathaniel Howell, had reported gunfire outside his embassy compound. The embassy had been surrounded by Iraqi troops, and Iraqi tanks and infantry were quickly overrunning the light Kuwaiti defense forces. Meanwhile, Iraq sealed off its own borders and canceled all incoming and outgoing flights, On August 6, Wilson was summoned to the foreign minister's office. He was surprised to find Saddam Hussein waiting for him, decked out in his Baith Party uniform, complete with his characteristic pistol on his hip. Towards the end of the meeting, Wilson wondered if Saddam Hussein was fishing for clues as to whether the United States might intend a unilateral military response to his actions. Saddam Hussein publicly declared Kuwait to be Iraq's 19th province on August 8, 1990. By mid-August, the U.S. Embassy had a lean staff of nine Americans, including me, Wilson wrote. I called us the Expendables. It wasn't long before Iraq demanded all embassies register citizens in their care with the appropriate authorities. Wilson wrote that the failure to comply would result in capital punishment. U.S. authorities saw this as a way for Iraqis' government to take more hostages. The choice, Wilson continued, theoretically was either to turn over Americans or to defy the note and risk execution. During an off-the-record press briefing at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq on September 20, 1990, Wilson wore a noose around his neck to make a statement to the reporters in the room. If Saddam wants to execute me for keeping Americans from being taken hostage, I will bring my own fucking rope. Calling Hussein's bluff, Wilson harbored more than 100 Americans at the embassy, and helped evacuate thousands of people, American and non-Americans, out of Iraq before Operation Desert Storm officially began. Wilson was later praised by President George H.W. Bush for his heroism, being called a true American hero. Joseph Wilson lowered the American flag at the U.S. Embassy and departed Iraq via airplane on January 12, 1991. Wilson and the five remaining staff members flew to Germany before arriving in Washington, D.C. on January 13, 1991. Operation Desert Shield was born when Saddam Hussein moved his forces into Kuwait on August 2, 1990. United Nations Security Council Resolution 678 was passed by a vote of 12 to 2, 1 abstain, on November 29, 1990. The resolution gave Iraq one final opportunity to comply fully with Resolution 660, 1990, and all subsequent relevant resolutions. Passed on August 2, 1990, Resolution 660 demanded that Iraq withdraw immediately and unconditionally all its forces to the position in which they were located on August 1, 1990. Resolution 678 set a deadline for Iraq to leave Kuwait. Unless Iraq complied with the resolution by January 15, 1991, member states cooperating with the government of Kuwait were authorized to use all necessary means to uphold and implement Resolution 660-1990 and all subsequent relevant resolutions and to restore international peace and security in the area. Iraq ignored the ultimatum. On January 16, 1991, Operation Desert Shield morphed into Operation Desert Storm when Commander of the United States Central Command, Norman Schwarzkopf, sent a message to the United States Central Command. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines of the United States Central Command, this morning at 0300, we launched Operation Desert Storm, an offensive campaign that will enforce the United Nations resolution that Iraq must cease its rape and pillage of its weaker neighbor and withdraw its forces from Kuwait. My confidence in you is total. Our cause is just. Now you must be the thunder and lightning of Desert Storm. May God be with you, your loved ones at home, and our country." With an estimated $61 billion spent on the war, on February 27, 1991, President George H.W. Bush sat in the Oval Office at the White House and told the nation, Kuwait is liberated. Iraq's army is defeated. Our military objectives are met. Kuwait is once more in the hands of Kuwaitis in control of their own destiny. Operation Desert Storm was over. Exactly 100 hours since ground operations commenced, President Bush continued, and six weeks since the start of Operation Desert Storm, all United States and coalition forces will suspend offensive combat operations. It is up to Iraq whether this suspension on the part of the coalition became a permanent ceasefire. At every opportunity, I have said to the people of Iraq, our quarrel is not with them, but instead with their leadership, and above all, with Saddam Hussein. This remains the case. You, the people of Iraq, are not our enemy. We do not seek your destruction. We have treated your POWs with kindness. Coalition forces fought this war only at last resort and look forward to the day when Iraq is led by people prepared to live in peace with their neighbors. As satisfying as it would have been to go on to Baghdad in 1991, Joseph Wilson wrote in The Politics of Truth, there were many reasons to stop where and when we did. According to Wilson, those reasons involved the New World Order, the goal that had been agreed upon within the international community was Saddam's expulsion from Kuwait. There was no legal authority to proceed further. Since the concept of the New World Order depended on international agreement and material support as we face these similar conflicts together, it was vital to establish from the outset that the parameters for the action and then adhere to them. Between 1992 and 1995, Joseph Wilson served on the United States ambassador to Gabin in Sao Tom and Principe in Africa. Wilson spent 23 years as a United States diplomat before retiring in 1998. In February of 2002, Joseph Wilson drove from his home to Washington, D.C., to the Central Intelligence Agency headquarters to discuss the Niger uranium industry. A report purporting to be a memorandum of the sale of uranium from Niger to Iraq had aroused the interest of Vice President Dick Cheney, Wilson wrote. His office, I was told, had tasked the CIA to determine if there was any truth to the report. When asked by the CIA, Wilson agreed to travel to Niger to assess the validity of the report. U.S. Ambassador Barbro Owens Kirkpatrick and Marine General Carleton Fulford had already investigated the claims against Iraq when Wilson arrived in Niger in late February of 2002. During his eight-day fact-finding mission, Wilson discovered that in 1999, One of his sources met with an official from Iraq, in Algiers, to discuss trade. My contact said the alarm bells had immediately gone off in his mind. Wilson explained in his book, well aware of the United Nations sanctions on Iraq, he met with an Iraqi only briefly and avoided any substantive issues. As he told me this, this, he hesitated and looked up to the sky as if plumbing in the depths of his memory, then offered that perhaps the Iraqi might have wanted to talk about uranium but since there had been no discussion of uranium, my contact was idly speculating when he mentioned it. There was no story. Wilson included this information in his briefing to a staff member at the American Embassy in Niger. Two years after his trip to Niger, the same source told Wilson that the Iraqi official he had met was Mohammed Saeed Al Shaif, better known as Baghdad Bob. Wilson was satisfied the allegations against Iraq were baseless. There were only two uranium mines in Niger, both of which were owned by a consortium comprising foreign companies along with the Niger government through a state-owned corporation. If U.S. authorities were still serious about investigating the matter, after receiving its conclusions, Wilson suggested that they reach out to Kogema. Only Kogema had actual possession of the ore from its time in the ground until it arrives at its destination. Wilson also made it clear that even off-the-books transactions of uranium would not have gone unnoticed by Kogema. Did the CIA ever contact Kogema about the allegations against Iraq? Words of mass destruction. During the State of the Union address on January 28, 2003, President George W. Bush told the nation, The International Atomic Energy Agency confirmed in the 1990s that Saddam Hussein had an advanced nuclear weapon development program, had a design for a nuclear weapon, and was working on five different methods of enriching uranium for a bomb. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. Our intelligence sources tell us that he attempted to purchase high-strength aluminum tubes suitable for nuclear weapons production. Saddam Hussein has not credibly explained these activities. He clearly has much to hide. If Saddam Hussein does not fully disarm for the safety of our people and for the peace of the world, we will lead a coalition to disarm him. On February 5th, 2003, Secretary of State Colin Powell addressed the United Nations Security Council. I asked for this session today for two purposes first to support the core assessment made by Dr. Blix and Dr. L. Baradai. As Dr. Blix reported to the Council on January 27th, Iraq appears not to have to come to a genuine acceptance, not even today, of the disarmament which was demanded of it. And as Dr. L. Baradai reported, Iraq's declaration of December 7th did not provide any new information relevant to certain questions that have been outstanding since 1998. Powell's second purpose for speaking before the Security Council was to share what the United States knows about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, as well as Iraq's involvement in terrorism, which is also the subject of resolution 1441 and other earlier resolutions. Iraq has now placed itself in danger of serious consequences called for in the UN resolution 1441, and this body places itself in danger of irrelevance if it allows Iraq to continue to defy its will without responding effectively and immediately. Our conservative estimate is that Iraq today has a stockpile of between 100 and 500 tons of chemical weapon agents. That is enough agent to fill 16,000 battlefield rockets. Even the low end of 100 tons of agent would enable Saddam Hussein to cause mass casualties across more than 100 square miles of territory, an area nearly five times the size of Manhattan. Fear remained the centerpiece of Powell's speech. Saddam Hussein has chemical weapons. Saddam Hussein has used such weapons. Saddam Hussein has no compunction about using them again against his neighbors and against his own people, and we have sources who tell us that he recently has authorized his field commanders to use them. He wouldn't be passing out the oars if he didn't have the weapons or the intent to use them. On March 16, 2003, Meet the Press host Tim Rusert interviewed Vice President Dick Cheney about the state of Iraq. Fear of terrorists obtaining nuclear weapons remained one of Cheney's regular talking points. We saw on 9-11, Cheney said during the interview, 19 men hijack aircraft with airline tickets and box cutters, kill 3,000 Americans in a couple of hours. That attack would pale into significance compared to what could happen. That attack would pale into insignificance compared to what could happen. For example, if they had a nuclear weapon and detonated in the middle of one of our cities, or if they had unleashed weapons of mass destruction, biological weapons of some kind, smallpox or anthrax on a major attack on the United States. That whole different proposition for us to think about. How can we deal with that? How would Al-Qaeda acquire those weapons of mass destruction? According to Dick Cheney, Saddam Hussein was a prime suspect. We know he's out here trying only once again to produce nuclear weapons, and we know that he has a long-standing relationship with various terrorist groups, including the Al-Qaeda organization. Cheney claimed Hussein was absolutely devoted to trying to acquire nuclear weapons and we believe he has, in fact, reconstructed nuclear weapons. The fear of Al Qaeda working with Saddam Hussein was a possibility too great to ignore. Yet the evidence of that claim always lingered in the shadows. Even so, the Bush administration continued its march to war with Saddam Hussein. On March 17, 2003, President George W. Bush addressed the nation about the decision to remove Saddam Hussein from Iraq. Today, no nation can possibly claim that Iraq is disarmed and will not disarm so long as Saddam Hussein holds power. For the last four and a half months, the United States and our allies have worked within the Security Council to enforce the Council's long-standing demands. Yet some permanent members of the Security Council have publicly announced they will veto any resolution that compels the disarmament of Iraq. The United Nations Security Council has not lived up to its responsibilities, so we will rise to ours. All the decades of deceit and cruelty have now reached an end. Saddam Hussein and his sons must leave Iraq within 48 hours. Their refusal to do so will result in military conflict, commenced at the time of our choosing. For their own safety, all foreign nationals, including journalists and inspectors, should leave Iraq immediately. The invasion of Iraq officially began on March 20th, 2003. If you don't include the airstrike on the Iraq presidential palace on March 19th as well as any covert operations conducted beforehand. At the beginning of the invasion, the United States had an estimated 248,000 troops and the United Kingdom had 45,000 boots on the ground. Australia had 2,000 troops and Poland had a whopping 194 soldiers ready to overthrow Saddam Hussein. They were joined by nearly 70,000 Kurdish Peshmerga. Coalition forces took control of Baghdad on April 9, 2003, forcing Saddam to flee Iraq's capital. A 39-foot statue of Saddam Hussein was removed from Firdaus Square in central Baghdad with the help of United States Marines. The statue was created in April of 2002 in honor of Saddam Hussein's 65th birthday. As the statue fell, it psychologically marked the end of Hussein's 24-year reign. American and coalition forces are now operating inside of Baghdad, President Bush told the people of Iraq the next day on April 10th, and we will not stop until Saddam's corrupt gang is gone the government of Iraq and the future of your country will soon belong to you. 140 United States soldiers were killed between March 20, 2003 and May 1, 2003. On the other side of the war, according to a 2003 research monograph, adding together our estimate of Iraq non-combatant fatalities, 3,750 plus minus 550, and a combatant fatality of 9,200 plus minus 1,600, yields our estimate for total Iraq fatalities in the war, 12,950 plus or minus 2,150, 16.5%. Rounding this off, our analysis suggests that as few as 11,000 Iraqis may have been killed in the war, or as many as 15,000. It is likely that approximately 30% of the fatalities were non-combatants, that is, civilians who did not take up arms. On May 1st, 2003, President Bush landed on the USS Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier with a huge Mission Accomplished banner behind him and announced, Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed, and now our coalition is engaged in securing and reconstructing that country. The big celebration on the aircraft carrier seemed a bit premature since the goal of invasion, the capture of Saddam Hussein, hadn't been accomplished yet. Even so, there was no denying the psychological effect such a display could have had on a person. Those who supported the war had something to cheer for. Those who opposed the war had something to make fun of. The greatest distraction was presented on the grandest stage of them all. Fuel the fire and watch it rise. On July 6, 2003, Joseph Wilson wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times entitled What I Didn't Find in Africa. Wilson's article began with a question. Did the Bush administration manipulate intelligence about Saddam Hussein's weapons program to justify an invasion of Iraq? Based on my experience with the administration in the months leading up to the war, I have little choice but to conclude that some of the intelligence related to Iraq's nuclear weapon program was twisted to exaggerate the Iraqi threat. The following day, White House Press Secretary Ari Flesher denied that Wilson was sent to Niger at the request of the Vice President's office. The Vice President's office did not request the mission to Niger, Fleischer stated. The Vice President's office was not informed of his mission and he was not aware of Mr. Wilson's mission until recent press accounts. So this was something that the CIA undertook as a part of their regular review of events where they sent him, but they sent him on their own volition. and The Vice President's office did not request it. Now we've long acknowledged, and this is old news, we said this repeatedly, that the information on Yellow Cake did indeed turn out to be incorrect. We've acknowledged that the information did turn out to be a forgery. This has been What is Truth? 9 11. Written by Greg Fernandez Jr., narrated by Ryan Barry, copyright by Greg Fernandez Jr., production copyright by Greg Fernandez Jr.